This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Dick Gephardt first entered public service in 1968 as a Democratic committeeman for the 14th Ward in St. Louis. He was 27 years old. Three years later, he moved up to become 14th Ward alderman and held that position until 1976. He then turned his attention to Congress and was elected in 1977 to represent Missouri's 3rd Congressional District, that's the St. Louis area, in the United States House of Representatives. Representatives. He held that seat for 14 terms. He left Congress in 2005. During his time there, Mr. Gephardt held several leadership roles. He was leader and chair of the House Democratic Caucus, twice actually. He was House Majority Leader for six years and then became Minority Leader when the Republicans regained control of the House of Representatives for the first time in 40 years in 1995. That's when Newt Gingrich became Speaker. He also ran for President twice in 1988 and and in 2004. Congressman Gephardt has a new book out called 535 Not One. 535 is how many people make up the legislative body we call Congress. 435 of them are House members, 100 are senators. In his new book, Gephardt tells some of his story about his time in Congress and talks about what he sees as the crucial role compromise necessarily must play in the legislative process. He stopped by the studio yesterday to talk about the book and the times we're in politically in this country. Let's hear that conversation now. Congressman Gephardt, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Good to be here. So why did you decide to write this book now? Because I wanted any reader, possible reader, to have a sense of what it's like to be in that committee of 535 people that we call Congress to reach compromises to make decisions to affect 340 million Americans. And as I had the privilege to be on that committee for 28 years, I had the privilege of understanding up close and personal how it really works, how we do this. And I must tell you that even though I'm 82 years old now, I am in awe of what we do as a democracy to govern ourselves, which is an incredible achievement that we've been doing for 200 and almost 50 years. When was the final edit put on the book? In other words, there's been some interesting times, especially in the House of late. you know, did you put the final edit on the book a year ago, a few months ago? I'm just trying to figure out when you stopped writing. It, it was about nine months to a year ago. Okay. Yeah. What's it been like for you to watch what's been unfolding in the House with uh, since, you know, Speaker McCarthy was ousted at the beginning of October and we watched it all unfold as somebody who was there for that and was, you know, House Majority Leader in that place. What's it been like? Well, it's completely novel what's happened. Uh, This would have never happened in the time I was there. And that doesn't mean that we were any better than the people that are there now. My worry about Congress now, and I say this all the time to people who ask me, what's wrong with Congress? Why can't they function? Why can't they make compromises? Why can't they make decisions? And I say, yeah, it is kind of dysfunctional, but don't look at Congress. What's happened to the American people? Congress must be a reflection of the American people. That's what it is. 
So if the American people are bitterly polarized, which they are today, Congress will be bitterly polarized and almost can't function. I mean, just imagine they threw out a Speaker of the House like a year after they put him in because any member under their rules they passed could kick the Speaker out. It's ridiculous. It it just won't work. And my worry is that if we don't heal this division that's happened among the American people, we're not going to heal our governance problem today. I read your book, 535 Not One. I enjoyed it. Would it be fair to say that at its core, the message is, and this is part of this is a quote from your book, open-mindedness, collaboration, compromise are the key to the legislative process and, as you've alluded to already, the key to us keep doing this thing that we've been doing for coming up on 250 years. Absolutely. So one of the things that I learned being in the place for 28 years is that everything depends upon everyone's willingness to respect one another, to be willing to listen to one another, and in that process be able to find common ground on controversial, difficult, complicated problems that you're there to solve. And that brings forth just human attributes that the people there have to have in order to make that compromise happen. Which is very much not where we are right now. No, we're not there now. It's almost like voters have been convinced that compromise is a reason to not vote for somebody. Exactly. And so you've got an alarming number of members of Congress today who feel they cannot compromise or they will be kicked out of office. Now, I would say to them, you should put country over self. That, to me, is the test of any public servant, any soldier out in the field, anyone who is a patriot, a citizen of this country. You should put country over self. And many times today, people are not willing to do that. They don't want to lose. I tell the story in the book about Marjorie Margolis, Ms. Vinsky, who I had to get her vote on a budget with when Bill Clinton was president. It was a tough vote. And she said to me, I'm going to lose my election if, if I vote for this. And I said, I hope you don't have to vote for it. But if you do, please stand back. Don't vote right away, and we'll see if we need you. And sure enough, at the end of the time, the clock turned off, and we were tied, which means we lose. And we had worked on this for months, and it was a huge compromise. And I went up to her on the floor, and I said, this is it. You got to do this. This Forget about Bill Clinton. Forget about me. Forget about the party. This is about the country. And she said, okay. And she walked down, plopped down her green card, which is the way you vote when the clock expires. And the Republicans stood in the aisles and waved and sang bye-bye Marjorie. She lost the next election. She knew she was going to lose the election over that vote. Uh, We raised the gasoline tax by three cents last time it was ever raised. 
and she gave up her seat for the country. That's what people have to do and have to be willing to do to reach these tough compromises for the people that gave you their trust. Do you feel like maybe we're starting to see some decisions being made that are like that, especially on the Republican side? People who are making statements in public knowing that they're going to probably be primaried maybe successfully? Some of it, but not nearly enough of it. And it, kind of the moderates in the Republican Party, those that are left, are the ones that really are forced to do that. Some of them are willing to do it, but most of them aren't. And uh, it is really a complicated time and a tough time because if Congress can't function, the people are going to give up on democracy. And they're going to say, let's go to plan B, which is the authoritarian model. That's where we're going to wind up if this didn't get straightened out. If you don't mind, I'm going to take you on a trip down memory lane. I've pulled a sound clip, which I think um, illustrates maybe the different time that you were in back then. Um, this is you on January 4th, 1995, getting ready to hand the gavel over to incoming House Speaker Newt Gingrich. And yeah, this was I pulled this off YouTube. Ladies and gentlemen of the House, I first want to thank my Democratic colleagues for their support and their confidence. I noted we were a little short, but I appreciate your friendship and your support. As you might imagine, this is not a moment that I had been waiting for. <laughs> when you carry the mantle of progress, there is precious little glory in defeat. But sometimes we spend so much time lionizing the winners and labeling the losers, we lose sight of the victory we all share in this crown jewel of democracy. You see, Mr. Speaker, this is a day to celebrate a power that belongs not to any political party, but to the people, no matter the margin, no matter the majority. All across the world, from Bosnia to Chechnya to South Africa, people lay down their lives for the kind of voice we take for granted. Too often, the transfer of power is an act of pain and carnage, not one, as we say, see today, of peace and decency. But here in the House of Representatives, for 219 years, longer than any democracy in the world. We heed the people's voice with peace and civility and respect. Each and every day on this very floor, we echo the hopes and dreams of our people, their fears and their failures, their abiding belief in a better America. We may not all agree with today's changing of the guard. We may not all like it. But we enact the people's will with dignity and honor and pride. What was it like to listen back to that? What kind of memories does that resurface? And, you know, what's it like to listen to it in today's times? Well, it was true that day, and it's still true today. And that's where we got to get back to. 
the founders of this country in 1789 had a radical idea that had never been tried any other place on planet Earth. Their idea was that people could govern themselves. They didn't need to have a king, a dictator, uh, 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 an emperor. They could do it on their own. And what I talked about in that talk is the essential element of being able to do that. The people decide on the representatives they want to represent them. Those representatives and the president has to accept the will and the voice of the people. If you lose, you have to accept the loss and concede and pledge to the winner that you will work with them with respect to carry out your charge from the people who sent you, the American people. And if we get off of that basic concept, we're done. The democracy will die and will go to an authoritarian model, which is what most countries in the world had in 1789 and many are moving to today. Uh, before you were majority leader and then minority leader, you were leader of the House Democratic Caucus. Can you just explain briefly what that role is? Well, the House Democratic Caucus is uh, mirrored on the Republican side by what they call the Republican Conference. And it's simply a meeting group of all of the Democrats who are in the House. The analogy on the Republican side is all the Republicans that are in the House. And in that group, you meet off the floor in a, one of the House office buildings and you decide on who are your leaders, and then you decide on the position of the party wants to take on various issues, the immigration, the budget, whatever. And then the party has to go negotiate with the Republicans on what we can compromise on, find common ground on, on all of those issues that we have to deal with. Now that you've painted the picture of kind of how it works and how party leadership works, I was listening to a local radio show. There was an interview with one of our members of Congress, Byron Donalds. He's a Republican. And this was while the House tension was unfolding. They still hadn't picked uh, Mike Johnson. Um, he said, the old days in Congress are over and it's for the best. It's time we represent the folks at home and not just follow what party leadership wants us to do. What are your thoughts on that sentiment of – a, the old days are over and it's for the best, and B, we shouldn't listen to party leadership if our constituents don't want us to. There's always tension, and there was tension when I was there, between what the party wants you to do and the messages you're receiving from home. And unfortunately, today we have a lot of congressional districts that are decidedly Republican or decidedly Democratic. So more and more representatives don't represent what we call swing districts or districts that are kind of evenly divided <clears throat> between Republicans and Democrats. But if what he says is the way it's going to turn out, 
which is I'm not going to listen to the, what the party is saying. I'm just going to listen to the people at home. That's really a prescription to not be able to get compromises. It kind of goes back to what I said a minute ago. Our basic problem is the division and the polarization of the American people. And if that persists, then Congress is going to have a hard time coming to any agreements to solve any problems. I, uh, you've mentioned polarization a couple of times. I talked to a, um, a researcher on this show. Her specialty is what's called pernicious polarization. It's a field of research that has looked at countries around the world as long as we've been able to collect information. And pernicious polarization indicates a place where the sides see each other as a threat. Based on her research and her explanation, we are in uncharted territory because we are this outlier being a superpower that's a democracy with civil rights written into the Constitution and into, into our laws where we've reached this area. And I think my question is, is this an inevitable outcome or has this been foisted on us somehow? It's not inevitable, and I think there are a lot of factors that cause this polarization, but I think the most significant factor today is the behavior of social media platforms. Now, you can point to the politicization of cable channels on both sides, and that's true, but you have to look at the business plan and the operation of the social media platforms. First of all, if you're on the platform, they know everything about you. And so they use AI to boost to you 24-7 information that will keep you angry and anxious and upset so that they will keep your attention and their ads are more valuable to them. So we outsourced our information culture to private companies, and I'm all for capitalism. I want people to be able to make money. But when your outsourcing of information threatens your ability to continue to have a democracy, I have a problem with it. And I think everybody should have a problem with it. Vladimir Putin knows that you, as a dictator, the first thing you have to do is control the information. And that's what he does. But we outsourced it to companies for fun and profit. I mean, why did we do that? We didn't do that with journalists. We didn't do that with radio. We didn't do that with television. We had a fairness doctrine with television and radio. We have legal liability on television and radio. Look at the Fox Dominion suit. We exempted, we made them immune from legal liability. I voted for it. In the early 90s, the platforms came to us and said, if you don't make us immune, look, we're just a dumb pipe. We don't produce any content. The people produce the content. You can't hold us liable. And if you don't make us immune, you're never going to have an internet economy. So we all voted for it. How'd that work out? <laughs> Is that Section 231? Yeah, 230. 230. Section 230. And one of my beliefs is that we need to amend that now to say, okay, you're a dumb pipe if you're not algorithmically affecting this information. But if you're boosting it with AI, then if that's causing harm to people, then you should be held liable in the courts. So we've, 
we've got to pass some various guardrails that we're all working on in Congress now. Kids Online Safety Act, the privacy legislation, transparency legislation. We have got to get guardrails on this so that the American people are not so bitterly divided because it's threatening our democracy. I don't know if you ever read any science fiction, but there was a science fiction author named Ben Bova. He lived in Naples. Uh, he was on this show in 2008. Uh, it was, you know, he was later in life. He was an older, older gentleman. And uh, that was right when I'd gotten on Facebook for the first time. It was right when the older people were finally getting on Facebook. And I asked him, I said, you know, what, did you th- what do you think of this new social media thing? And he hadn't been on Facebook. And he's a futurist, though, at heart. And he just, without missing a beat, he said, well, if anyone can put anything on the Internet that they want, and then anyone in the world can read any of that, then we're not going to know what's true. And at the time, I thought... That's pretty pessimistic, Ben Bova. But, man, he nailed it, right? He nailed it. He absolutely nailed it. And if you talk to pollsters today, they will tell you that the American people today in overwhelming majorities do not believe any information they get from any source. They don't know what to believe. They don't believe any person, any politician, any institution. We're in a bad place. You can information is everything. Thomas Jefferson said, if I have to choose between newspapers and government, I will choose newspapers because he understood that information culture was at the basis of governance ability. And the whole, um, I don't know, I can't remember who said it, but, you know, democracy requires an engaged and informed electorate. And it's really painfully ironic to me that we live in a time where information can be disseminated magically, and yet we don't know what's true. Well, let's look back for a moment at human communication. What's the history of it? So when we were hunter-gatherers 10,000 years ago, We came to dominate the earth as a species for two reasons. Number one, bigger brain. Number two, we invented language so we could communicate to solve common problems. Then came the printing press, and nobody knew, you know, in in the old days, in the hunter-gatherer days, it was face-to-face. That's the only way you could communicate, right? So now here comes paper. Who do I trust? Who's writing this? Do they know what they're doing? Are they being objective? So we rose up a journalism profession with standards and ethics. And so over time, people began to know, oh, I can trust this journalist. I can't trust that one. And then they moved over to radio and TV. Now we have 4 billion journalists in the world. And 99.9% of them have no training. And on top of that, the social media companies boost to me information that keeps me angry and upset because it makes them more money. That's why we're polarized. I mean, look, there's nothing we can do about 4 billion people being on the internet. We believe in freedom of speech. We always will. But we don't believe in freedom of reach, which is what's happened with the social media companies. Um. 
in case anybody hasn't figured it out yet, the title of your book, 535 to 1, that implies... Not you know, one. F- I'm sorry. 535 not one. not one. That's so. Uh, that's 435 House members and 100 senators. Correct. Um, what are your thoughts on making them, you know, expanding the number of House seats? Seems like there's a good argument for it. It probably would make some sense. They'd have to build a bigger building. They'd <laughs> <laughs> have to expand the building somehow. But it probably makes sense. I mean, you know, you think back in 1789, I, I don't know how many people were in the country, probably 9 million or maybe less. I mean, I, I've got that in the book. I opened the book with how many people were in the country then and how many representatives there were then. So if you just keep up with the math of expansion of population, it probably makes more sense. And let me tell you why that makes more sense. When I got into politics, uh, I learned that politics was talking and listening to the people that I was representing. And when I was on the city council in St. Louis, I had an old guy that was on the council, been on a long time, and I said, how do you conduct yourself? He said, I'm too old, but you're young. He said, you need to go door to door incessantly to know your voters, to know your boss, to know your people so that you know what they want and what they don't want. And so I went door to door the whole time I was on the city council, five years. I was in Congress for 28 years. I religiously with discipline, went door to door every time I came home, every other weekend, two days on the weekend, 12 hours a day, and I listened to the people. Still, people after I got out of office would say to me, you know, I hated every vote you made, but you came to my door, and I know you, and I think you're a good person, and I think you were trying to do what you thought was right for us. And so even though I disagreed with everything you voted for, I always voted for you because I knew you. So taking away that face-to-face ability from members of the House, I think, is a problem. And so as you get up near a million people that you're representing, it's impossible to go door to door or to have enough town hall meetings to see everybody. So I think that's probably a good idea. Could you imagine uh, our current Congress voting for a new, because that would have to, how would that, I don't even know how that would work, but it seems like there'd be a lot of It'd be really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Impossible, probably. Um, Maybe. um, uh, Last question. Um, You know, uh, has your time in the private sector as a lobbyist changed your approach to problem solving at all? No, because most of what I've done has been with my son and we do labor management relations work, usually with companies that have unions, but not always. But so what we do is really what I did when I was in Congress, which is how do you get people who have conflicts and disagreements together to compromise for mutual success? And so uh, it, it was really a continuation of what I learned in Congress, which is you got to listen to people. You got to put people in a room. It's hard work. Democracy 
and problem solving is just hard work. You have to spend the time on task, be patient, be tolerant, and respect everybody in the room and listen to everybody. When I, when I, I didn't come home very often when I was in Congress when I was leader because I was there, you know, all the time, day and night. And my kids once said to me, where are you? What are you doing? And I said, what I'm doing is sitting in rooms with people, 50, 60, 100 people, listening. I don't say anything. I just listen because my job is to get a thread through 218 people to get something done. It will never change. That's what it is. Last question, and you have to be fairly brief. Do you miss it? Do you miss being a member of Congress? No? Not at all. Not at all? I love doing it. It was a privilege to do it. I'm so happy I've been able to do private sector work after that, and I'm on five or six nonprofit boards, which is really what I love most of all. Um, I have a few more questions. Can you stick around after the end? Sure. Okay. But that is all the time we have for now. I want to thank my guest, Dick Gephardt, is a former congressman and Democratic House Majority Leader. Mr. Gephardt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You can hear our continued conversation at WGCU.org slash GCL. In it, we talk about the fundraising hamster wheel members of Congress are on these days and the threat of generative AI tools making it easy for pretty much anyone to create fake content that is indiscernible from real content and the implications that has for us being able to know what's true and whether government should or even can intervene. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, and WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR 4, Southwest Florida. Okay, you need to take a break or can I just no, keep talking? Okay, great. You talk uh, several times in your book about um, what you see as the importance of a president having experience in Congress. Can you elaborate on that? I'm just curious to hear your thoughts personally. I think it's a bonus if a president comes from experience in Congress. It's not a must. It's not a game breaker. Uh, but it, would, it helps. <clears throat> and the reason it would help is that at the end of the day, because we've separated the power, you know, our ancestors did a great job of diffusing the power to not only a president, but 535 people, and then the, the whole judicial system. But if the president is going to get anything done, he or she has to understand how you get compromise out of Congress to solve problems. And that experience of doing that in Congress is invaluable if you're going to be able to do that. Now, that it's not a game breaker. Bill Clinton didn't have a congressional experience. He was a governor. That's, but he had had experience in dealing with a legislature. That's a valuable experience. But anybody who comes without any experience in how to work with people – this huge committee of 535 people you've got to deal with, it's a problem. So 
That's that's my thought. Can you talk some about what I'm going to call the fundraising hamster wheel that Congress appears to be? Um, was it a hamster wheel when you were in Congress as as it is now or have things changed so much that it is? Because I hear things like 40 percent of their time is spent asking for money. You know, like that's almost half their time. Can you just reflect it, on that? <clears throat> it's a total change from when I started. When I came to Congress, there were members of the House who had spent the grand total of $100 on their campaign. Which could never happen today. Uh, Unheard of. Yeah, 100,000 wouldn't even be nearly enough. it's a fraction. I mean, a a garden variety seat is at least a million dollars today, sometimes more than that. My first campaign in 1976, the total I spent on a tough primary and a tough general election was $70,000. I raised all of it from friends and family and from whatever little money I had. You could not do that today. That would not work. Uh, I think this has to be solved. This is a major, major problem of the way the American people relate to Congress and think about Congress. They think it's bought and paid for by special interest, and there's a lot of truth to that problematically. So in the book, I talk about uh, a solution that I think would help. The Supreme Court has opined that speech equals money, so you can't constrain the amount of money that people can raise. But what you can do is pass a law that I advocated for in the book to say to any candidate who wants to run for Congress, if you agree ahead of time that you're only going to raise money from individuals, not PACs, not corporations, just individuals of up to $1,000, whatever. You could set it wherever you want, $500. Then whether or not your opponent agrees to that, we will match you dollar for dollar for every dollar you raise so that you get matching money for that from the public, from taxpayers. People will not want to vote for that because they're going to say, oh, the taxpayer isn't going to pay for my election. And I understand that. But what I would say to the public is, if you think Congress is bought and owned by the special interests, then you have to pitch in and pay for them to run. That's the only way it can happen. If you want to own Congress, then you got to pay for Congress. And maybe you could pass that. I doubt it today you could pass that. And yes, the answer to your question is the members spend a huge amount of their time raising money, begging money on the phone every day. Do you think that sort of precludes a bunch of people who might be great members of Congress who just are unwilling to do it because they don't want to do that? Yeah, they're unwilling. Absolutely. They're unwilling to do it or they don't think they can do it. So, and they don't want to deplete any money they have. So they just don't run. I mean, I got a big worry that we're not going to have enough volunteers. Democracy requires good volunteers. You're a volunteer. And so if people are afraid to run because of the cost 
are because of, you know, being diminished in the public and people going after your family and all this stuff that's going on. We're not going to have any volunteers to do this. So government of, by, and for the people will fall by the wayside. How closely have you followed, um, you know, you seem like you're pretty up on technology. Uh, Generative AI, since the launch of ChatGPT, coming up on a year ago, we've seen a huge advance in the ability to create content that, you know, you can see the horizon when there's going to be political, you know, it's going to be Dick Gephardt in 1988 saying something that he didn't say or, you know, whoever today saying something, but it'll look real and it'll get out there. You know, we've talked about social media. What are, you, what are your thoughts on this part of it? Well, first of all, you have to understand that social media has been using AI for yeah. 12 years. That's, yeah, yeah. That's what an algorithm is called. Right. It's AI. So we're already down this road. And we don't have any guardrails around it. That's what we're working on. But, yeah, the future of AI is just puts all this disinformation on steroids. And it is scary. I mean, just imagine you can make a video of Dick Gephardt doing something horrible, criminal, and the viewer won't know whether it's true or not true. Mm-hmm. It's, it's another blow at people's trust in anything they hear or see. So it's, it's fatal to our ability to have self-governance. And we've got to get guardrails around it. President Biden yesterday or the day before this week announced guardrails that he could do by executive power. But ultimately, Congress has got to get into this and to put some guardrails around AI. For instance, You know, you could make the generator of the AI reveal on the screen whether this is from generative AI or it's real. There are things that can be done, but you got to do it. Yeah, it's going to be tough, too, because, you know, because of the nature of digital information and digital tools that it can – somebody else can just do it on the side. Um, I've got a couple lighthearted questions, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, Who chose the Rocky theme for when you came out after winning the Iowa primary? Do you remember – whose decision was that? It wasn't mine. (laughs) (laughs) I must have been my campaign manager or thought that's a good thing to do. So that's why that happened. Um, Your book says that your mom stumped for you during that race in uh, in the same vein as Jimmy Carter's mom. Is that true? That's absolutely true. We had – I had really looked at the Jimmy Carter model for running in Iowa, which is what he did to get started. And I'd seen that uh, his mother had been really helpful. And so my mother, who was at the time 80 years old, <clears throat> went to Iowa for six months. And she went to every county and gave speeches about her son, as only she could. And... Uh, she was a factor. I, people loved her there. She was from St. Louis, the Midwest, and they were in the Midwest. And so she was a big hit and a big help. Do you still spend much time back in St. Louis or Missouri? I do. I have an institute for civic and community engagement at Washington University in St. Louis. I didn't go there for college, but I wanted to do something in St. Louis that would help St. Louis. And uh, so our kids 
go out in the community and do community service and work with community organizations to make things better all over St. Louis. Missouri or Missouri? Well, that's always the split. Uh, Missouri on the east side and Missouri on the west side. Um, if I'm reading between the lines, your story about being in Russia when there was vodka on the table, it seems like maybe the first time you got significantly intoxicated was sort of against your will, or at least you had to play along in Russia at a table with leaders. Is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment. And I was really sick after we left. I was sick all night, vomiting and so on, because I had never drunk alcohol to any extent, really. And And you had your own bottle. I I drank a whole (laughs) bottle of of vodka. And uh, who were you there with? Um, my wife was there and a uh, Air Force, a U.S. Air Force person and a liaison from our State Department. <clears throat> and then we met with this fellow by the name of Paputin, and he was the head of the Russian gulag, as it turned out. He was the minister of interior. I thought he was over the parks. Turns out he ran the jails all over the country. And he was a, a really robust, you know, guy. And he slapped me on the back when we got to his apartment. And he said, do you like to hunt? And I said, well, I've hunted squirrels with my dad, rabbits. He said, no, I mean big game. And so he showed me heads of bears and things that he had in his foyer. And so he was drinking right with me. You know, we drank each a bottle. And uh, at the end of the meal, I was ill. And my wife helped get me out of there. But I was bound and determined that I would be there the next day at 10 o'clock for the last meeting with the parliamentarians in Russia, Soviet Union. And... He didn't make it. He didn't get there till noon, and he had sunglasses on. So I was really proud that I had outdone him. Um, the last question, and I don't know if this is something you were even aware of, or maybe you have to sign a release. I'm not sure. There's a TV show on Apple Plus called For All Mankind. Have you even heard of it? I have not. Um, it's a really interesting show. It starts off right when the moon landing happens, but when you're watching it from the control room, the thing comes down and a cosmonaut gets out. So it's an alternative history. What if Russia landed on the moon before we do? And then the first season takes us all the way to like now, basically. And in the 90s, there's a character that's totally based on you. (laughs) (laughs) Please. There is a Speaker of the House of of the Democrat Party who is clearly based on Dick Gephardt, in case you're not aware. How unfortunate is that? (laughs) Well, I'll have to tune it in and see this character. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting show. Um, And I know, um, you know, Space, I was watching a WGBH interview that you did back in 1988, and it was really interesting because you were talking about, they asked you about, like, the future of space, and you said, well, I was just in Alabama And I saw this space station that they're working on, which should be up there someday. Um, And we're getting ready to launch this space telescope, which would have been the Hubble. Yep. And and then now it's still up there. So what's it been like to be, you know, on the front row of some of these cool things? It was a privilege. That's all I can say. It's such a privilege to 
be in a public servant position to see all of these things happen. And uh, I must tell you, there's such a parallel. If you study history, it always it doesn't always repeat itself, but as Mark Twain said, it often rhymes. And so a lot of what you're seeing right now in the Middle East, with Russia, with China, are things that we've seen in the past history a lot. And you can learn a lot from history. Um, and, and we can do better if we understand history to solve problems that we had then and we still have now. All right. Well, I want to thank you for your time and spending this extra time with me. Thank you so much. Thank you.